0: A South Dakota journalist says the attorney general should look more closely at that Freedom Works Here contract. From SDPB, today is Thursday, February 22nd. This is In The Moment. Coming up this hour, Patrick Lally is with us. We'll talk about his reporting on the bidding process for Freedom Works here. Then, if you're not seeing much snow on the ground, what does that mean for spring precipitation? We'll check the outlook with our state climatologist. Then we look back to the flooding of 2020 and an SDSU project that considers flooded landscapes. A high school student brings a lesson plan to kids as part of a teacher training program, plus a preview of the upcoming South Dakota Symphony Orchestra concert. That is coming a bit later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Patrick Lally is editor of Sioux Falls Live. He has stepped into SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls to open up his reporter's notebook for us. We're going to dive into the reporting behind his story. It's called Governor Kristi Noem and the Culture of Collusion in South Dakota. Hey, welcome. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you, Lori. It's great to be here.
0: I'm going to lay some things out here and then I'm going to ask you how long you've actually been working on the story because uh, we've reported on in the moment about Governor Kristi Noem's Freedom Works Here campaign, the commercials. Our Dakota political junkies have provided analysis on whether those commercials are effective and the process of the contracting and how it was awarded as that news kind of trickled in. Um, We spoke with a marketing professor about the effectiveness of the commercials, and about whether they're workforce development ads or whether they're political branding strategy ads. You can find that on our YouTube page. But with you, Mr. Lally, according to the premise of this article, we are not focusing on the commercials and whether they're effective and whether they're a good idea and whether they're bringing workers in. We're really focusing in on that contract. So we're going to say that again. It's about the contract not the commercials. <laughs> so, why are we talking about this now? There was an effort in the state legislature this session to add a bill that would deal with collusion and bid rigging in state government contracts that failed because opponents said, jump in here if I'm wrong about anything, but opponents said, we already, it's already illegal collusion and fraud in state government contracts, bid rigging that's already covered under the law. So, the mechanism. That is currently in place and you outline in this article like four different pathways but it sums up with the state government accountability board and that was formed in 2017. The overseer of that is the attorney general in this case it is Marty Jackley so that board looked through some of these things and said we're not going any further with an investigation into this contract and you have said Not so fast. There's more here to look at. There's some reasons you should be looking deeper. You're asking Attorney General Jackley to pay a little closer attention to this. Um, So here's your chance to jump in, correct anything that I said, and then tell me how long have you been looking at this to get to the point where you really thought, hey, this isn't just politics as usual. Um, This is something that needs to be investigated.
1: I think you covered it pretty well there, um, but yeah, obviously there's a lot of details underneath mm-hmm. uh, that premise. Um, I think that one of the main, I, to start, I've been looking at this since, well, a little bit in July when we had the big announcement just across the street here yeah. uh, with the NASCAR. Um, first got my interest in it, and that's when the, the amount of money that was being spent first came out. That's when those questions started getting asked. It wasn't It was everybody, all the reporters who were there asking the governor about this. Um, But to be honest, it really kicked into gear when the Daily Mail, uh, Ken Silverstein, dropped a story about the alleged affair between the governor and Corey Lewandowski, and nobody wanted to write about that. I wrote a story initially um, just about the reaction to that story, and that drew a lot of interest. But that wasn't why I got interested in Freedom Works here. That started with the contract because uh, pretty quickly after I started looking into it, I realized that the company that got the contract was actually a doing business as for another company that was a subsidiary of the strategy group, which is a Ohio firm that does a lot of big political media work in politics, including for Governor Kristine Holmes' reelection campaign.
0: So I want to be clear, because you mentioned Lewandowski and that Daily Mail article, which most people are not talking about because it's unsourced. Uh, The governor has vehemently denied it. The timing of its release, you know, seemed suspicious and politically motivated. It's kind of a hit job. No state lawmaker is willing to talk about whether or not they're concerned about this relationship being romantic. But for some reason, the name Lewandowski at that moment made you think about the contract clear up why, because it's not well, really about whether, you're not really talking about what the nature of their relationship is. You're talking about the fact that they know each other and that he knows someone else yeah. who then ties into this. So explain yeah. that a little bit, please. And
1: I don't, to be clear, yeah. I do not care about the details of the relationship. And that's There's no not, evidence
0: uh, that there has been a romantic relationship. Well, it
1: was an unsourced article, but there were a lot of anonymous sources, probably politically motivated within mm-hmm. the Republican party. There's a lot of people in the Republican Party who are trying to take out Christy Nome because they don't like Corey Lewandowski. And that's just behind the scenes ugly politics. That's normal, right? What's not normal is the fact that Mr. Lewandowski, well, he is connected to the strategy group because he was involved with Christy Nome's gubernatorial campaign. And they all know each other Lewandowski, Yoho. Um, and that's just politics. No, nobody's got any problem with how she spends her campaign dollars as long as it follows state law. And there's no accusation there that there's any impropriety. And if Mr. Lewandowski, through his relationships, brought Mr. Yoho in the strategy group, he's the CEO of the strategy group, brought him into uh, that circle, that's fine. I mean, that's just normal po- political networking. But then it becomes a public contract. That's a different story. And when you start digging into it, you realize that the strategy group doesn't do this kind of work anywhere else. And I talked to people, former insiders from the strategy group, who said just that. They aren't doing economic development work anywhere else. They are a political campaign firm. And that's fine. And they make a lot of money doing it. They're good at it.
0: All right. So let's dive in. To the timeline. Yeah. I think. Do you have it in front of you? Or do I you don't, have it I, in your brain? I have it pretty well okay. in my brain. <laughs> so the article is right here in front of me. Mm-hmm. You can follow along at Sioux FallsLive.com if you want to go find the, the full piece that Patrick Lally has written. So you start with November 8th of 2022 when Governor Noam is reelected. Mm-hmm. Uh, workforce development is already something everybody is talking mm-hmm. about. December twenty-third, then is the WPA intelligence. Political research firm sends a memo to the Governor's Office of Economic Development, led by Steve Westra, and this is Ben Yoho, who co signs the memo for WPA Intelligence. Why is that significant?
1: Because it links Yoho to that effort before the contract was ever released, the RFP. At this point, there's no RFP for research, there's no RFP for advertising. It's just a discussion, apparently, between the governor's campaign firm, and the G-O-E-D, Steve okay. Westra. And that what's really gotten overlooked in this conversation, because I found it late in the process, is that memo. And that memo was leaked to me. It's not public. And it connects Yoho, WPA Intelligence, and Westra in conversations about this with the language that eventually became... So this is the company that got the first $100,000 contract to do the market research. Mm -hmm. They, In this memo, that memo becomes the RFP. So the company that got the contract wrote the RFP.
0: Okay. January 7th. That was December 23rd when that memo was sent. January 7th is the inauguration. Mr. Yoho and Mr. Lewandowski are at the inauguration. They're seated side by side. January 10th, is when the state of South Dakota publishes the RFP for market research. The 11th, the very next day, Strategic Media Placement, which is part of the strategy group, registers to do business in South Dakota. Let's stop there. They're not registered to do this business in South Dakota. It's significant. Why?
1: Well, they they have to register as a foreign corporation. I don't use that phrase in the stories because it's confusing. It just means they're an out-of-state company doing business in South Dakota. But the next day, they didn't, and they didn't, do any business as strategic media placement. They created another entity called Go West Media, which is a DBA for strategic media placement, which is part of the strategy group. And then the next day, the RFP is released. So in three consecutive days, they create, they file one business, create a second business, and then the RFP is released and they file their proposal, which when you can, I've only seen one other proposal. But the one other proposal I've seen is a hundred and some pages long.
0: Okay. So I mean, once again, because people are listening, they can't read this. So January 10th, the state publishes the RFP for market research. The Mm -hmm. 11th is when the strategy group registers to do business. The 12th is when they register doing business as Go West Media. On the 13th, the proposal for the ad campaign, the RFP, Mm -hmm. $5 million, that is released And the 13th. They submit their proposal on the same day that the RFP is released. Now the deadline for this is February 3rd. There are going to be
2: well, clearly, several several
0: yep. companies that are also going to, um, you know, submit their proposals by April 12th. Mr. Yoho has signed the contract for the Freedom Works here, so they will get the contract mm-hmm. and. You mentioned in the article, hey, it's subjective. They, this is not this is not about the lowest bidder. Mm-hmm. The money comes first, and then we'll see what you do and what your ideas are, and that we, we pick the one that we think is a good fit. Mm-hmm. So why not say this is subjective? You get to pick Go West Media if you like Go West Media. What doesn't pass the smell test for
1: you? First of all, their their proposal was incomplete, didn't include many of the points that were in the RFP. Second of all, if you start, if, if the other firms start to see it as rigged, they're not going to submit proposals. Now you don't have a competitive bid process. Now it's a sham. And you can make a pretty good, if you look at the definition of bid rigging, right, writing the proposal, having the company write the proposal is bid rigging. I, there's just no other way around that. And that is actually illegal under federal law. Doesn't matter what entity of government you're part of. That is illegal. Federal government has a task force. But they're just questions. And again, Senator Schoenbeck, in the last meeting of the e board on this, the executive board, said anybody with two eyes and a brain can see that there's a part we're not talking about here, which is the part that another company's proposal, Creative, Lawrence Schiller in Sioux Falls, was basically lifted out of their proposal and used in the campaign. So Schoenbeck says, anybody with two eyes and a brain can see you lifted this. You, and and you, and basically he's saying it's subjective. You can do whatever you want. I don't know why you're going through all these lies and, to do it. And so, so it's, it is, it's clearly collusion. Whether it's illegal is not for me to say. Mm-hmm. But
0: So you can't steal an idea. The idea of the governor dressing up as a welder, maybe all of them said that. What makes you say that it was lifted? Why did Mr. Schoenbeck say, hey, this looks like it's pretty obvious that it was lifted from Lawrence and Schiller's proposal?
1: There was no creative in the strategy group, Go West Media's proposal. It was 10 pages long to 12 pages long. Um, There was a lot in just generic information about how they buy media. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The drawing that's in Lawrence and Schiller's proposal that's not public, that was I got it. It was leaked to me. And then the eboard was able to see it is an exact, it is It is exactly the image of the welder that becomes one of the commercials. Um, so, yeah, you can say the idea of her posing, in, that's fine. But it is such a direct connection. And in my reporting, sources have told me that Mr. Yoho did not provide any cooperation with the staff at GOED, did not provide any ideas, did not answer questions, did not do any of that. So they did just lift that. There's no question about it.
0: I want to make sure we get to, in the interest of time, this idea that there are also resignations. Steve Westra is going to approve this, and then he's going to resign. On Mm -hmm. April 26th, he resigns. That's going to be effective May 22nd. He signs the contract on May 3rd. Um, how, how are the resignations and the failure of the people who made some of the decisions to appear in front of the State Accountability Board or to be required to appear in front of the State Accountability Board significant in your estimation?
1: Nobody has asked the people who were actually there the question. When they brought uh, Chris Shilkin, who is now resigned, who is the current GOED commissioner in front of the e-board, which is the leadership of the legislature, and can direct this investigation, one of the key people who was involved and was there didn't show up. And they, when Representative Carr, Chris Carr, who should be commended for just trying to get some questions answered, when he said, maybe we should talk to Westra, Hugh Bartles, who's the speaker of the House and chairman of that board at the time, shut it down. He didn't want to talk to Steve Westra. They don't want to ask the questions. That's it. Like you can, you we can quibble over whether or not it's collusion or not. But if you don't even want to know, what what does that say about the legislative leadership, who doesn't even want to have the, ask the questions? You can say it's already illegal, but there's you won't know unless you ask somebody who was there. Right now, Chris Shilkin has plausible deniability because he wasn't there.
0: What do you think should happen next?
1: They should bring Westra. Somebody should bring Westra in or ask him the questions. He signed the contract. He knows more about this than anybody. The, the former marketing director of GOED said it was clear. He was told that Go West should get the contract, and it was his job to collect all the data and ask the right questions. He was told to give it to GoWest. Who told him? Who told Westra that that's who should get the contract? Did he just make that up and say, that's what I think? Or did somebody else tell him? And we don't know because nobody will ask the question.
0: Where is he? I
1: don't know. I actually, I think I know where he is. I've tried to reach out to him. I've had uh, intermediaries reach out to him. Um, he has left employment uh, with the the employer that he had afterwards. Mm. Um, so I don't know I, if he's listening. I would love to talk to him because I think it's. I want him to explain, to answer the questions, to clear his name. Because he looks like a bad guy here.
0: How long have you been covering state politics in South Dakota? 30 years. Patrick Lally is with Sioux Falls Live. You can read his work at com, offering political analysis today on the contracts behind Governor Kristi Noem's Freedom Works Here campaign ad. Thanks so much. Bring us updates when they come in. Thank you, Lori. Well, we are right on the heels of spring, typically the rainiest month of the year, but we're coming out of what is typically the year's snowiest months, and we saw relatively few flakes. So we're going to explore if the lack of snowstorms and ground cover may translate to fewer rain showers this March. Laura Edwards is the state climatologist at SDSU Extension, and she's joining us from SDPB's Tom and Danielle Amon Foundation Studio at Northern State University in Aberdeen. Dr. Edwards, welcome back. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. All right. It feels kind of uh, dry out there, which has been nice to not wear my coat in uh, February and not nice if you're looking for some normal
3: precipitation. What have we seen so far? You know, I think one of the there's two big stories here, both the snowfall or lack thereof and the temperatures you know looking at february so far for the first three weeks we have aberdeen ranking third warmest february on record sioux city similar third warmest uh huron area ninth warmest on record so we're seeing temperatures so far for february 19 degrees 15 to 19 degrees above average in parts of the eastern uh, side of the state Um, and for the winter overall december through february very similar aberdeen still running third warmest for winter, um, you know, and that's continuing. Some of the drought concerns in the Sioux Falls area and also in the Black Hills, which is what I would call a snow drought. Um, mm. with, there are areas in like Kansas that have had more snow than Leed and Deadwood area have, which is really hard to believe, um, but really it's having a, a big economic impact and looking ahead towards fire concerns in the spring season. Mm. All right. This is an
0: El Nino year. Do I remember that correctly? Does that how is that impacting this, if at all?
3: Yeah, but it is an El Nino year and a strong El Nino at that. One of the top five or six strongest on record since 1950 and uh, it is starting to dissipate and is uh, anticipated to dissipate pretty quickly here in March and April but what that often means and has meant in the past is warmer than average temperatures in the winter which is exactly what we've had. Um, El Nino doesn't tell us a lot on precipitation. We've seen some wet years, some dry years, and um, certainly this year, I think with the warm temperatures, we've seen more rain than snow. Uh, If we look back, especially at the week of Christmas with some of those Christmas storms, we saw a lot of rain and not much snow um, earlier in the winter season. So um, that's what we've seen. But El Nino will not really play a role too much as we go forward in the spring. Um, and into the summer. All right, let's talk about the outlook for March through May. New numbers in. Yep, so the outlook from the Climate Prediction Center uh, from NOAA, from NOAA, it was just released just a week ago. And uh, looking like our warm trend at least will start into March. And for most of northern, northwestern, South Dakota, we are looking at Uh, Chances leaning towards warmer than average temperatures for March overall on the southern half of the state, uh, not quite as much certainty there. Uh, So we have equal chances of warmer, cooler or near average temperatures for March. And um, that's also true for March through May for the spring season overall. Um, On the side of precipitation, though, we do see um, increased chances for wetter conditions uh, in the southwestern and south-central parts of South Dakota uh, for the month of March. It looks like a little more active weather pattern there and and going down over Nebraska and Kansas. But as we look ahead towards the spring, it doesn't look like that pattern will hold uh, for precipitation. Um, But as you said, Lori, we're heading into the wettest time of year. So I think even just timely rains, even something near normal amount of rainfall uh, through May will be just fine and, and will will keep us in good standing, at least as far as avoiding <laughs> more more drought or more severe drought.
0: All right, we will keep an eye on that and welcome you back soon. Dr. Laura Edwards, South Dakota State Climatologist, thank you so much for the update. Yep, thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on SDPB. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, think back to 2020 because of the 2020 floods. Several lots in Waubay, South Dakota, were underwater and considered uninhabitable. What should be done with newly flooded or flood-prone landscapes? That is a problem that an SDSU class sought to solve. Jeremiah Bergstrom is a lecturer of landscape architecture in South Dakota State University's School of Design, and he is joining us today from SDPB's Janine Basinger studio at SDSU. Welcome. Thanks for being here, Jeremiah.
4: Good afternoon, Lori. Thanks for having me.
0: And we have two of former students from SDSU on the phone Shelby Smith and Emma Martin are joining us. Shelby, welcome to In the Moment. Hi, thank you for having me. Emma, thanks for being here as well. Thank you. Well, we are all lined up and here to discuss the class's final project, which was a guide for creating flood-resistant landscapes. So, Jeremiah Bergstrom, help uh, plant us in 2020 and give us some background about what you were seeing and how this turned into a project for SDSU students.
4: Yeah, I moved to South Dakota to teach uh, at SDSU in 2018, and we had some major uh, rain events even in that summer, and then I was speaking at a conference, a planning association conference here in Brookings, uh, and a gentleman from Waubay was listening to some of the work that I had been doing in uh, in New Jersey, uh, which was following up on some major storm events that impacted communities and flood-prone areas. Um, and uh, the work that i had been doing is really looking at the landscape. Once we buy out properties and remove the homes, what do we do with those properties? And so with that conversation, he, um, he, he saw the work I was doing, saying we have some of these same problems in, in Bay. Um We've had a number of homes that have been flooded out over the past you know, five to six years, and now we don't know what to do with these, with, these, with these properties. Can you come up and help us? And I said, let me come take a look, and I, w- I was shocked. Um, Mm -hmm. by the extent of the flooding that has happened over the past uh, that had happened over the past 10 years we've had increased uh, rainfall and the lakes had expanded dramatically uh, and a number of properties were now uh, significantly impacted by flooding and waves and ice um, that uh, had to be removed Uh, and FEMA came in bought those properties removed the homes and then said to the towns hey these are all yours now take care of them have fun with them and they're like okay what do we do and uh, and it it left them really struggling, trying to figure out what happens now.
0: Mm. And the, and the temptation can be, we leave them, we do nothing. It's a wasteland. And and you think that there could be more that this can actually be turned into some kind of strength by looking at infrastructure. I want to. Um, give you a chance to sort of address that big picture and then i'll bring these students in to talk about how they kind of entered the projects and some of the the big questions they started asking so there's the tip for shelby and emma about what i'm going to ask them next but you tell me a little bit about why not just leave them be
4: yeah and so i look at these these landscapes and we try to look at these landscapes as infrastructure green infrastructure and the class that that emma participated in really worked with Bay. Um Unfortunately, it was over uh, COVID year, so we weren't able to go up there and engage with them one-on-one, but we, we worked um, with them as best we could uh, remotely to really reimagine what these landscapes could be in terms of assets uh, and in and, and areas that could be enhanced to uh, absorb floodwaters, as well as um, provide habitat, and, and protect the water quality of the lakes. The lake, the community depends on those lakes. And so Emma really worked with us uh, through that class, was one of the students in that class, and then after that helped me outline and begin to do some more research with my colleagues at Rutgers to create the document um, that we, we, we just completed. And, and, and Shelby then was a key player in, in helping us to, to craft that document for, um, for final production.
0: Emma Martin, you had to do this remotely. I've just, my heart, (laughs) your college uh, life interrupted by the pandemic as it was. Did you see that? Well, you didn't see that as something that shut down. You saw that as an opportunity to work around. Tell us about how you entered this project and and some of the big questions that you were asking yourself about how to move forward.
5: Yeah, so this project was... um, Uh, It was essentially a semester-long project where we started by looking at the history and the um, current context of WABE in 2020. You know, how did WABE start? What is its current infrastructure? What are its current needs? You know, what's its population? And so we worked as a class. We worked our way up from that to here are some potential uses um my uh, my proposal specifically was pocket prairies so small areas of native grasses plants shrubs and um you know we as a class started to look at how we could implement those our ideas in specific properties so i was given a property that was heavily flooded um, that was one of the more heavily flooded areas i believe and um, with that i proposed a um essentially a nature park where the area that would be marshland would have native marsh plants slowly making its way towards you know tall grass prairie which is what is native to that area of south dakota um, with observation decks little uh, trails and other uh, and similar things like that. Um, And we presented it to Wabe and um, created a large document for them to reference in the future for when and if they have funding to, you know, here's some ideas. Here's a launch point
0: for us. Yeah, I hear the, the the philosophy and the themes and, and the ways to execute. Shelby, tell me a little bit about the document and your role in the project, as, especially as it intersected with your time as a student at SDSU.
6: Yes. So I worked on laying out um, the content of the primer, so kind of deciding colors, um, putting certain colors for certain chapters. um, Putting together graphics, I also chose fonts, and then also just laying it out, like how how is this going to look, chapter by chapter, um, what photos should go where, how should this be laid out, so when people are reading it, um, they're reading it in in a way that isn't how do I want to say it? <laughs> I'm losing my words it, here.
4: It um, isn't overwhelming to it them. Isn't for them,
6: yeah. yes. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Um, but yeah, so it was just really laying out the graphics of it, um, the content, and bringing that all together. One of the things I love about the connectivity
0: between these two things, Shelby, is that, you know, design can be invisible. Like maybe no one's going to notice or point out that, but it is integral to what you're trying to accomplish with clarity of information and the aesthetic and all of that what what inspired you about the work some of the other students had done and put together and the work of jeremiah when you were doing your part to say hey i'm i'm woven into this as well
6: It was, I think the biggest thing that was the most inspiring is how we could bring everything together. Um, All of our ideas, um, the variety of knowledge and expertise, and just seeing all of that. I mean, landscape architecture was a completely different um, area for me, so being able to work with them and bring it all together was, and seeing the end product was truly inspiring and be able to create a guide that... Is ultimately going to help not only New Jersey communities but communities across um, North America.
0: Jeremiah, this this guide that you put together is is the first of its kind, which seems surprising to me. Did that surprise you that this that this wasn't something that had already been done multiple times in multiple communities?
4: Yeah, very much so. Um, and it's like you know we have all of this all of these resources that are that are. Available right after a flood event to help people relocate and move out But those resources stop as soon as those homes are Removed and there really has not been any Guidance or direction other than saying you can't do X Y or Z now that we own this property or now that you own this property It's protected from you know building future homes on it or paving it. Uh, It needs to be You know able to flood and and not cause any damage to any prop any structures on it and so that to a lot of people, that means we can't do anything, but there are things we can do. And that's never been provided to communities in the past. And, and this document, again, it's a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary work. Um, uh, uh, Emma has a background in community regional planning. Uh, Shelby is a graphic design student, and I had another landscape architecture student working with me. And we're collaborating with ecologists and engineers in in, in New Jersey on this. So it really takes a lot of um, a very broad perspective to, to tackle this issue, and then in our challenge uh, as designers uh, again the work that that Shelby did was key in helping us to try to convey a lot of this technical information in a way mm-hmm. that a very broad audience could understand uh, as they yeah. begin to wrestle with what do we do with these landscapes once we now own them and, and they we've either purchased them or they've been given to us by a state or a federal entity to say hey they're for they're yours to care for how do we make them not a burden but an asset and really a green infrastructure asset because these flood prone landscapes do protect us, uh, and they need to be seen as an asset rather than uh, a liability.
0: Yeah, this is if you grow up in this town, and and this is the green infrastructure, it is vital. To the community it's not just an additional thing which goes back to the question earlier jeremiah of like oh, why not just leave them there well there's like a hundred reasons and that's and that's one of one of them uh what was what's next for this guy jeremiah tell us a little bit about what you hope whether that's implementation in a community like wall bay or a replication of the process for other communities
4: yeah, and and so you know this guide was uh, our, was sponsored. The work was sponsored by the Department of Environmental Protection in New Jersey. Um, as looking at this, and I've been speaking with others here uh, in in, um, in our region, thinking about this concept and, and the work that we've done, and the principles apply anywhere uh, in terms of. St- Beginning with this uh, ecological restoration approach, but we need to translate that. Flooding is a little bit different here in our region. We have rivers and s- rivers and streams that are impacted by dikes and levees and agriculture. We have lakes uh, as well. Uh, very different dynamic than than the, the coastal areas that we were we were um, really wrestling with uh, on the on on the coast. So. Um, Mm -hmm. of coastal areas in New Jersey and so uh, I think for for me it'd be nice. it would be great if we could begin thinking about how to translate this and adapt it to be very specific and very relevant for the communities here Uh, and uh, again working through the exact same process of that but uh, imagining it and reimagining it so that it uh, it it speaks directly to communities community leaders here in our region
0: Mm -hmm. mmm by the way you're beautiful there. We just think, I just love Wabi. It's such a beautiful drive. It's a beautiful community. Um, Emma Martin, what are you doing next and how will this work sort of influence the work that you do next?
5: So I'm actually, um, working for the city of Lincoln, Nebraska planning department. Um, I, part of, I, uh, Jeremiah definitely encouraged, he encouraged me to pursue my master's, and through that, I've been able to. I'm working on my master's now and working at the planning department, and um, I think part of that is I have I had the experience of working on the primer, which was absolutely fascinating, and um, I think it helped me to you know, pursue my, pursue further education and um, get a job in the field that I am so very passionate about. Yeah, Um, I love that. I could go on about it
0: for days. Shelby, how about you? Working on this project helped you, you know, redefine or rethink or even apply for things in the future. What do you want to leave us with?
6: Yes. So working on this was, um, doing a publication is in designing a book is another area of design. Mm -hmm. Um, that I could explore and get some more expertise in. So uh, that'll just kind of add to my portfolio. And um, I am currently a marketing coordinator at Southwestern Mental Health Center in Laverne and Worthington. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of different things, but this just adds to, um, you know, all the things that I'm able to do. And it's just being able to collaborate with another area of design. It just adds to um, my yeah. portfolio and being able to accomplish
0: um, multiple different projects. I love it, Shelby Smith and Emma Martin, the Jack Rabbits and Jeremiah Bergstrom from South Dakota State University School of Design. Thank you to all of you for being here with us today. What a great project! I enjoyed learning about it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's take a moment for a future South Dakota teacher. There are hundreds of open teaching positions across the state. Lawmakers are working to make South Dakota teachers' salaries more competitive in comparison with our neighbors in hopes of addressing the issue. But another concern is lack of young people considering a career in teaching in the first place. The next episode of South Dakota Focus looks at different approaches to solving the teaching shortage. One of those solutions is a group called Educators Rising. It gives high school students firsthand experience teaching through class materials and competitions. In this preview from South Dakota Focus, host Jackie Henry talks with Harrisburg High School junior Caitlin Christofferson. Henry visited with Christofferson after she presented a lesson plan she created to a group of second graders at Harrisburg's Explorer Elementary.
2: The thing I pride myself on when I do these lesson plans is making sure I have multiple different ways to learn it because everybody is so different. Some are auditory learners, some are visual learners. By having all those different ways of learning, I can I know I got to most of the kids in that class. Like I got to them in some way that they could understand it and then they can have an example in the back of their mind. Like the ice cream, when they think of the states of matter, they're gonna think ice cream now.
3: What started as a class Christofferson tried with a friend has become a passion for a future career. Clearly you want to be a teacher. Yeah. You're very passionate about this, but you want to be a teacher in South Dakota. Yeah. Right. Tell me more about why.
2: I don't, I think there's just something about where I grew up. There's that like, we're in rural, like rural South Dakota, uh, rural Midwest. There's just something about that connection That we we can create with students. That there's obviously I obviously go to a very large school at Harrisburg, but being able to make those connections in those smaller schools and meeting all these people and making I keep saying making connections, but they're so important in getting to those learners. So like during the lesson today, you, you saw me getting on their level, trying to. Understand how their brains worked and how they understood the content to make sure that I was being the best teacher I could. And I feel like I can do that in the best way possible in South Dakota.
3: Notice she didn't say anything about the pay.
0: That's a preview of Solving the Teacher Shortage, the next episode of South Dakota Focus. You can see the full episode tonight at 8 p.m. Central, 7 Mountain on SDPB TV, Facebook Live and on the SDPB YouTube channel. We'll take a break. The South Dakota Symphony Orchestra is up next on listener-supported SDPB. Mm ¶¶ to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Celebrated pianist Joyce Yang is taking the stage with the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra this weekend in Sioux Falls. We're going to have a preview of that performance now. Maestro Delta David Geyer steps back into our studio. Welcome back. Thanks for being here.
7: My pleasure. Thanks.
0: This is a uh, an incredible program, and uh, Joyce has talked about these this piece in other places. So I have some specific questions I want to ask you, mm. as she describes it. Like, what does that mean, and help us understand that as South Dakota listeners? Mm-hmm. But first, tell me a little bit about her, as a as a guest artist, and why you wanted
7: her to come. Well, um, the relationship was actually Jennifer mm. Um I've never worked with Joyce before, but Joyce went to summer. Uh, sun valley summer festival when jen was there and um also bravo vale i believe but so um so jen brought her to me i was aware of her of course because she's an international name okay. um but uh you know this is uh you know we have a lot of wonderful guest artists come through but then we have people that we pay honestly pay, pay a little bit more for and uh, <laughs> and you know a little higher profile and joyce falls into that category
0: so people are Going to be excited to see her because it's her. Mm-hmm. What does she bring to the stage?
7: Well, I mean, th- the biggest piece of e- ear candy that we have, Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto. <laughs> <I> mean, it's, <laughs> honestly, it's uh, you know, it's just so so gorgeous and powerful, uh, and it's been you know, an, it's been a, an audience and musician favorite for over a hundred years. So, like, and there's a reason for that. So, yeah, and Joyce's interpretation, she she brings a lot of passion to it, a lot of fire. So, yeah, yeah.
0: she she uses words like, um, you know, learning how to be the protagonist of the piece and the color and the narrative arc of it. And it's it's language that I think is is interesting when you meet with these guest artists and you find out their creative process, which might be different than the one who came before, which might be different than your creative process or from Dusa Kim's creative process, what do you need to know about how they do their work, if anything? Or do you just need to know that they can take the stage, do the performance fit into the orchestra like what are you looking for as far as like how they prepare that gives you confidence or enthusiasm to have someone here
7: well I mean Joyce has a long track record and and with this piece so there was never any question about that Um, you know as a as a conductor I'm a servant I'm a servant first of all to the composer um, to the musicians the orchestra the audience um, but it's, it's doubly so for a concerto because, um, it's not, it's not me, you know, imposing my interpretation on the piece as much as it is me trying to support the interpretation of the soloist. So that's the, and that's always a, you know, it's a negotiation. Um, I really need to just n- know what, what she's doing, hear her play. I don't mm-hmm. really need to hear her talk about it. Yeah. I just need her to hear her play, and then we all need to hear her play, and, and we adapt as we go. That's the way it always is.
0: Servant to the composer,
7: always, always.
0: How much do you have to know about the composer, and do you learn that from the piece or from? I'm digging at something because I always hmm. want the text. Yeah, and you're like, I don't, I don't need her to talk about it. I'm like, I do. But for you, so when you're trying to get to know the composer, is it just through the notation on the page and how they created, or you like the whole biography of Rachmaninoff, mm. and you know the Russian Revolution and where he fits into mm-hmm. this? Like, how do you serve that?
7: Yeah, no, it's a it's a big big process. I mean, we'll talk about Schubert in a moment, but that was mm-hmm. a deep dive for me. The um, so it it's always it, it's always biographical historical sociological like understanding all of that for a piece of music and um and then you know you you get that in the music itself to uh some composers more than others like it's unmistakable and in, in the music of Bach and his spiritual life and and his place in the Lutheran church or the music of Beethoven and his the time of you know in Vienna during you know the you know napoleon and all of that i mean it, it all comes out in the music it's mm. it's really really something but if you don't i mean of course you can just play the music you yeah you enjoy can just play it, yeah. it off the but yeah. you know that that kind of interpretive depth only comes with a lot of time and effort
0: so tell me about schubert
7: well schubert you know for those people who
0: we've ch- we've switched tracks a little yeah. bit to that was the Rachmaninoff, and now we're talking about what is the schubert piece that you're playing
7: well schubert symphony number no. 9 uh, his last symphony. So, I mean, this is, let's just acknowledge this isn't a very atypical Geyer program because there's no contemporary music on this program, right, which right. some people will uh, be really happy yeah, about. Some people
0: are so happy that yeah.
7: <laughs> And other people will, you know, wish that there was something else.
0: They will appreciate the Geyer typical program. Yeah,
7: that's more. right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but Schubert, those who've journeyed with me um, these almost 20 seasons now, uh, Having our audiences have not gotten much Schubert. Mm-hmm. Um, one piece I've played in my 20 seasons. Um, Schubert used to be firmly ensconced in the pantheon of of classical composers, right up there with Beethoven and Mozart and everybody else. Um, with the decrease, I would say, in uh, in music education, um, arts education, humanities in general in the schools. Uh, over the last few decades uh, schubert has has uh, been demoted somewhat um, not because he was deserving to be, but just because that you know our our canon as it were shrinks and shrinks because of lack of familiarity okay. so um, and i I have to confess that for myself it was a um, a bit of a um my own unfamiliarity. I mean, I'm not a pianist um, and I'm not a string player. So those are the people who are most familiar with Schubert. Mm. Um, I have conducted his earlier symphonies before and I've always come away with a kind of, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's really good music, but I didn't really get it. So I knew that coming to this piece, his magnum opus that I had, to do a deep dive. So I spent the entire month of May with Schubert last year. Mm -hmm. Once the season was over, nothing but Schubert for an entire month. Over 100 songs, all six masses, lots of chamber music before I even touched the Schubert Ninth, And it's a monumental work. So I'm looking forward to digging into it. This orchestra's never played it in its Ah. over 100-year history. so.
0: Yeah. And let me tell you, I'm going to editorialize at the end of the hour. That is all going to show up on the stage um, this weekend. The concert's on Saturday, February 24th at the Pavilion. It's at 7.30. We're going to put more information up on our website at news That devotion, that dedication, that knowledge, that experience, that trust that you've built with the orchestra and the audience, that is all on the stage. Um if you pay just a little tiny bit of attention. (laughs) And if you don't, you're going to still have a really good night. So Delta David Geier, Maestro, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate your time. Thank you. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you from all of us at SDPB. We thank you for listening.